Hi everyone, this is episode 6 and it's all about multiple sclerosis. I'm Catherine. And I'm Andrew. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So Catherine, um, it's the question we are more used than ever to asking, but how are you in these strange, unprecedented times? I'm good. And I have to say that this part of me, I had a bit of a Twitter interaction with someone this morning. Don't worry, it was good. I'm not going to say anything bad about it. But no, and they were talking about mental health, especially in this lockdown and everything. And I don't mean to make light of it or anything, but obviously as someone who's had agoraphobia in the past a couple of times, I have to say the lockdown, it part of me kind of finds it quite heavenly because I'm just like, I don't have to go out. Yes. Yeah. You know, I can just stay at home. I've got my family here. We're safe. I'm getting food delivered to me. You know, it's just, it's wonderful. But I think, you know, especially with covered mental health a couple of episodes back and we had that conference that we were at on panel at cover. There's just this kind of immense kind of, I think kind of ticking bomb in a sense that we're potentially going to see at the end of this. And we spoke about this very briefly with Mike Adams, didn't we last week, uh, last week um, um, about, um, you know, potentially the occupational therapy that's going to be needed to sort of like correct people's backs and different things because of the amount of strain that's going to be putting on people from working from home. And I think we're going to see probably this, a, a huge surge in regards to mental health as well, because I think there's going to be lots of people who maybe have mental health conditions who are struggling because they're now isolated. It could be that people are now suddenly on their own and have never had a mental health condition, but it kind of being away from people and their social aspect of life, which is their probably their outlet is going to be a thing. And I think we're also going to see potentially a huge um, reaction within a lot of NH, NHS workers. Absolutely unbelievably so because one, they're either on the front line and seeing things that no one should have to see. Um, even though I know they are trained for that, um, you know, it's going to be um, very, very difficult for them. And then there's the other people who, you know, even locally, people who um, are having to isolate away from their family and their children because of providing this care. And I can't even imagine what that must be like. But um, but no, so for, so for me, there's last few days or whatever, the last week or so since we spoke, I've just been feeling very, very grateful to be in the position that I'm in um, and um, and moving on to a slightly lighter side of things, I am now starting to learn to play the flute. So in equivalent to everybody, that is your virtually, you know, your six-year-old child coming home with a recorder. I'm doing <laughs> payback now to my kids or well, my eldest child. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, the lovely Lindsay from Kiora has been teaching me and she um, suddenly went off and did this beautiful trill of some kind of classical music and and obviously I just sort of like looked completely dumbfounded at her because it was like yeah okay I'm never going to be doing that but I can do Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and Baby Shark so that's good and um, my two-year-old just repeatedly shouts no at me until I stop so that's really good <laughs> um, <laughs> but how, how are you Andrew? Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, in reality, I'm, I'm okay. It's, um, as you say, it's fascinating how in a way nothing changes. It's like, I guess the pseudoscientist in me finds it fascinating on a, on an individual level, how, you know, my life is pretty much exactly the same day to day. And yet my mood changes so much. <laughs> there are days where, as you say, it's, it's quite easy to see the positives and other days where it's very hard to see the positives. Um, so I'm, gl- I'm glad that it's the first day back of the working week. And that definitely helps us in our house to have structure around Absolutely. Sort of school and sort of everything. I think the weekends are harder uh, at the moment, which I wouldn't normally say. Um, uh, but yeah, it's look, it's, it's, um, 
it's it's difficult and it's i i i think it it does make me realize um being being more stereotypically male and british being more stereotypically male than you being more male than british than you i don't i don't miss <laughs> i don't miss hugs quite as much as you do but i do miss yeah. coffees but you know coffees with with people just to chat and just to it makes you realize some of the values of those things that i still don't think you fully get on a you know a pub zoom meeting or whatever we enthusiastically proclaim the value of in on social media i still think there's it, it makes you treasure some of those things um so so i'm, I'm looking forward to those at some point this summer <laughs> um is probably as accurate as we'll go for next week so 20th of april starts multiple sclerosis awareness week and uh, really wanted to focus on that because i do speak to a lot of clients who have multiple sclerosis and um, they have a range so there's you have primary progressive multiple sclerosis secondary progressive multiple sclerosis and relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis and i think the majority of people that i well the majority of people i've spoken to and i imagine a lot of advisors speak to are the ones that have relapsing remitting um, ms and um, i've also done some work in regards for people with prime progressive too in the uk there's more than 130,000 people living with ms and um, that is from the ms society information and it women are three times more likely to be affected than men so when you sort of have a look at those figures as well that's roughly one in every 500 people will have um, multiple sclerosis and i know that may seem like quite a small figure but when i think of like our local secondary school which is not the biggest secondary school in the world um, it's quite small um, there is absolutely at least 500 students there. I would imagine quite a few more. And that's quite mm -hmm. scary, I think, when you, start, when you think of it and apply it to more sort of like practical terms of exactly just how many people it can affect. Yeah, and try not to get too technical. Uh, I'm aware probably and listening back to a couple of these where I need to be reminded this is the Practical Protection Podcast, not the Technical Protection Podcast. So to try and keep it at a level that's helpful um, for everyone. Um, I think some of the observations, some of the honest observations um, are that protection, so life insurance, critical illness in particular, and IP um, has probably had a tough relationship with, with MS, with multiple sclerosis over the last couple of decades, really. And two different reasons for that. One is the um, underwriting and one is the claims. Um, so under as an underwriter, it can be a very difficult condition to underwrite when people are potentially being diagnosed with MS. Um, and so we can talk a lot more about that. But, but the fact is, as well as those numbers, and you've mentioned the, the female domination um, in, in diagnosis, you also have the fact that diagnosis tends to be, or is most common in people in their 20s and 30s, which by chance, um, and less importantly, but is when people are often buying life insurance. So you often, as, a, as an underwriter or as someone or as an advisor or as someone who's applying for cover are applying at a time where diagnosis isn't quite settled or symptoms are still moving or you, you know you may be at suspicion of so I think that's an important thing to acknowledge that you know that that is just the reality um, and then probably related to that you have kind of the claim side so so you know back in back almost 15, 20 years now, but when I started in underwriting, then kind of the two main ways that insurers were losing money were through early claims for, for cancer and early claims for MS. Um, and because of that, application forms 
really got tightened around that. And that's why um, on underwriting questions for MS specifically, we kind of ask questions about things like fatigue and numbness and tingling, which for most advisors and for most applicants are are, you know, are very hard to understand quite what we mean by those. I think that's good. I think it's it's good to start focus on those kind of symptoms and understanding them as well, because there's plenty of times that I have spoken to people and I'll say to them, you know, do you have fatigue? And at the same point, I've just spoken to them about how they have two kids. It's like one and a half year old and a three year old. It's not easy for the client and it's not easy for the advisor, but it's not easy for the insurer and the underwriter either, because, you know, what is, you know, sometimes the fatigue, what is just the fact that, you know, it's the MS or what is the fact that you're maybe a parent or what is the fact that you are working maybe 12 hour days? Because um, some people with MS obviously can work and, you know, don't have you know problems working. I think for me, it's where I come to a slightly different conclusion to other conditions where for other conditions, we've talked quite a lot about um, the importance of customer disclosure and possibly more important than GPRs. Mm. Um, the, I guess the third bit of the difficult relationship that the protection industry has with MS is that there are a higher number of claims that are declined for misrepresentation for for not telling us things on application. Mm. And you've highlighted some of the reasons why that could happen. Um, And, you know, if you end up getting um, evidence at claim stage from a GP, then it can look, you know, frankly, mentions of fatigue or tiredness um, can be littered through anyone's yeah. uh, GP. It, it probably is that the main condition where, in my honest opinion, I would always rather see a GP obtained, uh, a GP report obtained at outset. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a bit of a mix with it. And I think it depends upon the insurances as well. So for life insurance for multiple sclerosis, obviously, um, we see um, that most people will have to go for GPRs um, as proof, which obviously completely understandable for like what you said. But there is um, some insurers where you can just go straight through without a GPR. uh, And that's on the standard market. Critical illness is the trickier one. But so with some um, well, with an insurer, you can get, um, as I say, critical illness cover. And it is, but they must have been, had a stable MRI for at least four to five years. I believe um, no symptoms or very, very mild symptoms um, for them to be able to cover it. And it would exclude multiple sclerosis and blindness. When you're getting into certain covers and stuff that it is probably a GP report, it just clarifies everything and makes it probably feel a little bit safer. And I think from an an advisor's point of view, it makes me feel as if my recommendation is safer because then... I know that if something happens, I've actually done the right job for them and we've got all that information there to the GP. But the critical illness cover, that's something that really frustrates me with MS. And um, this will be something that if underwriters, obviously are more than happy to hear what you have to say, but if underwriters do want to contact me and let me know sort of like my the lack of my knowledge and where, you know, sort of like they can fill in any spots, that would be fantastic. But I get confused. And things like MS and other, some other conditions as well is to say like why we can't do something maybe a bit like I don't know like a, possibly a bit like the AIG key three policy you know where they can maybe say right you can have you know a, a, you can't have full critical illness cover for everything and anything however you know you can have access to cancer heart attack and I want to say stroke but obviously MS is neurological so I'm not sure if stroke would be okay um 
was going to say Parkinson's disease then, but then obviously that, <laughs> that's neurological as well. Um, I'm trying to think of something else. Third degree burns. There we go. Why don't we say cancer, stre- uh, cancer, heart attack and third degree burns? You know, why can't we do something that would maybe that would be available to, to the people who are in this situation? It, 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 it seems like it's a, a missed opportunity. Well, I guess it's so with all of these, there's the is it a risk issue or is it a business and profit issue I guess is the blunt is the blunt two main things again and, and yeah. kind of uh honestly speaking in this practical way then yeah so you have the risk issue which is which is challenging for areas of MS because to go through I guess to quickly go through those examples third degree burns I don't think anyone is going to say there's going to be a significant difference I mean you I guess there's a possibility that it could affect you know your ability to pick up a kettle or your you know your dexterity at times so I think the bigger reason does then become business um, and and there you have issues around I guess understand I guess the first ones are the customer facing ones so, so do they really understand that they aren't getting the full critical illness that they might you know that their partner or their friends might have that so they're getting this different thing and, and does that create more yeah. risks at claim stage is it financially viable to get the extra evidence on these knowing that you will end up disappointing and customers bluntly that there are less you know it's a numbers game and if you don't have thousands of people rather than tens of people then then kind of the whole principle of insurance and grouping people together starts to erode looking forwards and in a world where you know in a global insurance market and with micro insurance and different things that you can do it does still seem odd that we're so tied to kind of three big solid products um life criticalness income protection and there's not more variety it, it, it is possible as i say to come up with those priced products so then the challenge is how do you have a business that works where you only in inverted commas write a thousand people underwrite a thousand people a year not 10,000 or 100,000 um, mm. and, and yeah whether that's going more global whether it's bringing in other similar conditions and having that more nimble product I, I, I'd be fascinated to hear from people either publicly or privately if they if they think they have um, if they think they're closer to solutions on that yeah the thing is I, I get the sort of the business part of view of it you know you don't want to build a product and that I don't even want to imagine the amount of money it takes to compliance approve and get everything sorted for a brand new policy and all that kind of thing. But, you know, ultimately we are speaking 130,000 people in the UK and I'm I'm sure that insurers have offshoots or sister companies across the world. So you're probably going to end up running into the millions at some point of people, you know, that that would be accessed and like lessons could be learned and transferred over to, to other organizations, you know, in different areas. I mean, one thing that sort of stands out for me, and I think Alan maybe come up with this a few years ago. So I'm going to mention him because obviously if not, then I'll get it afterwards when he listens to it and goes, Oh, I had that idea, Stealer. Um, So um, I think he came up with this idea of basically why not develop instead of critical illness cover being as it is. And I know this is completely revolutionary and it's probably not going to be something that's feasible in many sort of ways. But I think if there was any kind of new entrance or anybody wanted to do something really kind of revolutionary, it could be quite good. How about like allowing people to um, pick and choose, in a sense, their cover for critical illness cover? So, you know, you could have you know, one, you can have a critical point about one unit covers the cancers with your list of cancers it covers, another unit covers heart conditions and it lists, another one covers neurological and it's kind of in a sense, you know, if you can imagine vitality is a list of, you know, 
different things that they have their sections you know you can have all those sections and then you could just say if someone applies and they've had cancer then they know right okay cancer isn't going to be available but i can buy the unit on heart conditions i can buy the neurological conditions unit and i can do this and they could build the package that way i think it makes sense in many ways because you know i'm speaking to people at the moment i've got somebody who wants critical illness cover and she had a skin melanoma a really small skin skin melanoma on her back about a year ago and the prices are ridiculous you know she is quite happy to have a cancer exclusion um and well, and the standard insurers, I've got, I've got other options for her because obviously cure, this is what we do. Um, but, you know, on the standard market, it's so ridiculously expensive. And you just think, why is her having cancer? Why is that making her more at risk of having a heart attack, a stroke, Parkinson's disease, multiple, you know, it just, and it's a little tiny skin melanoma. It just, and I know that's just one example, but there will be thousands of people who are in that kind of a boat. I mean, it, there's bound to be. And it just feels like such a shame that we're not doing something. And I think, you know, there's that whole thing of the confusion as to whether or not people know what they're getting. Well, to me, I'm not saying this, you know, just because I'm a broker, but if you're that worried about it, then only provide it through brokers. You know, there is certain, all group insurance pretty much is provided through intermediaries. And we've got the mental health um, option through Royal London. It's only provided through three brokers in the UK. There are ways about doing it. It's just going to take someone, I think, to, and I'm not saying that's the perfect scenario, what I've suggested, but I just think it needs someone to take that kind of step and go, you know what, let's try and broaden this more than what we are doing at the moment. You know, realistically, as I say, cancer, a small skin cancer is not going to cause someone to have a heart attack. You know, and I, I don't think, I'm sure I'm going to completely kick myself thin. this. I don't think there's a medical professional that's going to come around and tell me that that's the case. Um, but obviously, you never know. I say I'm going to get flooded with messages now and I'm saying that that is the case. But, you know, there are so many things. I get it, you know, multiple sclerosis. You know, I get the fact that maybe it's possibly be worried that there was more of a risk of a stroke because it's neurological. But then, I, I mean, I don't even know the statistics for that. I don't know if anyone's really in the insurance world maybe looks at it. If you have, please let me know. It'd be fascinating. I mean, what's the likelihood if you've got multiple sclerosis that you are going to develop Parkinson's disease? Um, I don't even know if there's a connection there at all. There's, I think sometimes it's business-wise, yes, I think it's sometimes easier to say, you know what, let's just say no there, or let's just put like a bit of a blanket decision over there. But I really do think that it's insurers that are innovating, and especially we're seeing some huge innovations with some insurers at the moment responding to the um, coronavirus pandemic, and it's, it's absolutely hats off to them for what they're doing. In an age of adaptation, because more and more people are being diagnosed with conditions, and um, I think it's inevitable that this is just going to happen more and more. Let me let me quickly try and run through, I guess, the the how I would think about those things, and, and then you love them, <laughs> then don't leave you? it open. You love leave them. it open Brilliant to other ideas. <laughs> yeah. So again, <laughs> so again, I guess comes back to risk risk in business as as the top two, but then probably a third one in this. But so risk for me here, I think we have to acknowledge that comorbidities or both not just insurers, medical science and charities tend to be focused on one condition at a time yep. and working out what goes on across conditions bluntly is, is kind of a, you can apply common sense to, but there's not a lot of big studies often. So, so for example, we can say MS, you do have a, you know, potentially increased chance of mental health uh, conditions and vice versa. Um, and, and there seems, certainly there seems to be some studies that, 
show that. I pop in with a little bit of a suggestion as to why that might be. Is that okay? Yeah. I'm not going to ruin your. Yeah, of course. Of course. Is, I think a lot of the time, I think that can be said of pretty much anybody. Well, not anybody, but I think that can be said for any condition, the mental health side of things, um, for a number of reasons. So, like, obviously, as again, I'm not going to whittle on again, but obviously, I was diagnosed with hypermobility syndrome when I was 12. I had over five years worth of injuries where doctors disbelieved me. They tried yeah. to accuse my mum of Munchausen syndrome. Um, they said I was a hypochondriac. I was breaking bones. I was spraining. I was in ridiculous amounts of pain. And these were happening regularly. And we were just not um, listened to. And I think sometimes your mental health is obviously so affected because of the fact that you've just, nobody's believed you and you're scared. And I know it sounds tough, but you are relieved when you are told the name of your condition and someone says, says to you, you are not insane, you were right to feel this way you have, the relief you get is immense. But then you have the mental health side of things like, well, what's this going to mean? And then you start looking at things and you get these scare stories and then you get people that are saying it's fine and you're left with kind of, you know, this kind of world that suddenly you've, in it, you've been in it, but now it's, it does feel like it's changed because you kind of, you're crying out to say to people, well, listen to me, you know, I am right. I have been right all this time. And then you're also not wanting everybody to know that you've got something because you are, you don't want to be labeled. Friendships mm. are very, very hard when you do have a chronic condition because like the pettiness and the squabbles of the world feel so insignificant because of the fact that you're dealing with so much inside anyway. And I think, I think it's very understandable for, and, and I don't think it can say, I completely appreciate what you're saying that MS has a link to mental health conditions, but I think that can probably be said for anything. Cancer's bound to have a link to mental health conditions, Parkinson's disease, stri- you know, I think anything where someone's diagnosed with something, there is that link potentially of mental health conditions, but sorry, that's me just going off on one. So no, no, no. Look, and it's a challenge with, let, let's be clear. It's a challenge. And we've fallen into the same trap, right? Only we, we, we don't stick to a topic in, the, in these podcasts, <laughs> but, but it's exactly the same way. And certainly, you know, I think charities are aware of it, but they, but it's very hard to almost get attention without starting from a condition. Yeah. But then you, you enter the, the actuaries and the underwriters world where, where, well, there are these overlaps. And in, in, if you're trying to come up with a product that almost, pretends there's not mm. um then that that's where i guess from a risk point of view it becomes challenging because there obviously are overlaps and and understanding where those are but where there's not great data um can make people nervous so i guess that's i think i think that's kind of the main risk one the business one again i think is from an insurance point of view it's uncertain volumes and and from an advisor point of view um i think there it's it's whether the product could be secure enough that people would feel comfortable from a compliance perspective. A recurrent theme, I guess, for me in, in why these things often don't happen, which is a bit of almost an insurer seeing themselves in kind of a nanny state or that kind of paternalistic way of trying to trying to help people out. <laughs> but possibly they see the customer as, you know, possibly it is time on occasions to let that 20 something year old child actually make a decision for themselves people might choose the wrong things Mm. and then that's rubbish for the customer but it is also rubbish for the insurance industry because you end up declining more claims and like it or not claim stats are understandably important to getting trust in our in our industry and until you can overcome that and i think it's you know it's difficult it's difficult to get a story out that says we we are being more flexible we're allowing more people stuff without without acknowledging the risks that it may lead to more confusion at the end and 
it, the more you tighten and say, oh, but we'll only sell it through really good brokers like Kira, um, the more the business case kind of gets eroded. So that's that's the vicious circle that manages to kill many good ideas yeah. like this. Um, and 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 as I say, I think I think. I think that's entirely up for challenge, and, and but it's just knocking down each of those bit by bit and, and still having enough numbers left at the end of it that, that's the challenge for us all. Yeah, I think you know, interesting what you were saying there, because I mean, to me, if, you, if insurers are worried about it, is, it's kind of that thing of like, well, we're worried about what will happen you know, if, if brokers don't sell it right. Well, if you put it out to brokers or you know, that basically people understand it, you know, I've had it before with insurers. I had one not long ago with insurer where we had to... Um, to be able to sell one of their products, we had to complete um, a test to be able to sell the products. You know, that was fine. Yeah. It was the rule. You know, if you want to sell this product, you have to complete the test. It was like, okay, then I'll do the test. Then that's absolutely fine. Um, so you could do that. I mean, it could just be provided through brokers. And in a sense, you know, if if insurers are worried, then if there's a if there is an issue, then that's going to go on the broker. It's not going to go on the insurer. And then the brokers can choose whether or not they feel comfortable providing that product or not you know to people i mean as i say i'm not saying that what I, you know, i've said is in any way shape or form the sort of like the ideal world scenario um it just as with anything it's like you know i mean we've had some you know incredibly huge achievements with um with hiv in regards to income protection and uh, and with life insurance as well you know next is hopefully some kind of movement in regards to critical illness cover understandably that there will be you know um probably an exclusion on there for cancer i imagine i would hope it will probably just be very specifically you know detailed cancers but um but you know i imagine there'll probably be a blanket one but again it's just that kind of it just feels wrong to sort of like you know have a condition to go right absolutely blanket you can't have anything you know there's mm -hmm. there's 50 conditions yeah. here you're likely to get one of them <laughs> So you're not allowed any of them. It just it just feels Absolutely. a little bit wrong. But um, but moving no, on from absolutely. the critical illness side of things, then. So what are your things on income protection? Because obviously, income protection fully appreciate MS is a progressive condition, um, and it's likely that symptoms will get worse. Uh, I mean, obviously, at the moment, most people are restricted to accident and sickness cover if they're wanting any form of sort of like income replacement type coverage. Do you think that there will be any kind of development at all, or, or even if there is any kind of feasible way of being able to offer some kind of income protection to people living with MS? It's hard. It's hard to see, right? Because the and, and the progressive nature of it is key to that, and and the difference in rate of progression. And as you say, there there are different types of MS, and but you can move from one to another. Um, and the rate of progression for an individual can um, seemingly speed up or slow down, and some of that is medication uh, related, and, and but others, you know, isn't. Um, so it's not an easy one to be able to kind of give a convincing. This is a case for resilience and looking at you know how well you've responded to previous incidents or episodes or you know traditionally or normally income protection would be written to a retirement age uh, but the possibility that you know you, you pull the term down um, obviously again reduces reduces the ultimate risk and should increase your ability to be able to predict uh, but I, I I guess I I struggle to see the science changing significantly on, on this kind of immediately to get people comfortable enough mm to go there in, in a big way. For the vast majority of people with MS, you can get 
life insurance cover. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important to reiterate and get that message out. And that's, you know, both for people who are diagnosed with MS and indeed probably easier for people who are diagnosed with MS than people who are currently experiencing early symptoms. Yes. But yeah, for income protection, I, I wouldn't want to raise expectations for anyone. So I've got two case studies for you. Um, so the first one is a female, obviously I anonymized the details and everything as we're going along, but basically yeah. I had a female, she was in her early thirties when we spoke to her and she'd been diagnosed in the late twenties with relapsing, remitting MS. She'd had two relapses. Uh, the latest one had been at the four years. Um, so four years prior to chatting to us, which is when she'd been diagnosed. And before that, I think it had been, um, about 10 years prior to speaking to us. So she'd had the thing of, you know, some tingling, some numbness at the time of the relapse. But she was at that kind of stage now where she hadn't had, she had no medication, she self-managed, she didn't work evenings. Um, so, because obviously that would sometimes aggravate symptoms. And she was regularly exercising. Now, I think she was in that kind of stage where if she continued to not have symptoms or relapse for a number of years, then it would be considered the benign uh, multiple sclerosis, which I believe is where they've not had any symptoms or flare-ups for, well, the relapses for about 10 years, I believe that's right. Is that correct? Um, yeah, yeah. So for her, we were able to get her a 55% loading on life insurance, um, which means that um, you take the basic premium and you times it by 1.55 to get what a 55% loading is. And it was um, a multiple sclerosis and blindness exclusion on the serious illness cover side of the policy as well. So obviously we were really happy with that. Um, and she was really happy, obviously thrilled with that as well. But it does make you think though, you know, like with this one, because obviously we did manage to get the serious illness cover side of things, which probably immediately shouts us to which insurer we went to. Um, but um, it makes you wonder why, if one insurer can do it, why the rest, can't as well and i know it's different risks and everything i know the reinsurers are involved and everything like that on that on that case then it, i think it does work well as a as a um you know to highlight that that really very small extras can be applied for even people who have a confirmed diagnosis of ms and, and that's entirely in line with you know kind of i guess known and charity charity kind of um approved um, stats that would say that on average someone with MS kind of would have potentially five five to ten years reduced life expectancy and clearly with any average there'll be people better than that yeah. people worse and the plus 50 within underwriting is kind of saying um, you know you're around your, your life expectancy may be three or four years worse than 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 someone who's healthy enough to go through the insurance application without um, any without triggering any ratings what's interesting about that it just suddenly dawned on me as well as i was looking at it with that one we did have the ms and blindness exclusion we didn't have any exclusions for cancer heart attack or stroke yeah so that was quite yep. interesting um so the other case study that we have is someone who has more marked um uh, multiple sclerosis so it was a male who was in his late 50s so i chose a male because obviously he wanted to get a nicer switch up between female and male so when he came to speak to us he uh, was in his late 50s he'd been diagnosed in his late 40s so he'd been about 10 years diagnosed with relapsing remitting and he'd had two recent relapses i think one had been about um five years before speaking to us and one of them was only six months before rearranged the cover um he did experience fatigue slurred speech um had balance difficulties and muscle pain 
So he was on regular medication. He had to take um, do physiotherapy as well and sometimes required mobility aids. Now, we were able to get him life insurance and that was at, um, a 200% loading. So that means you take the basic premium and times it by three. So if it had been £20, it would become £60. Um, and I thought that was a good one as well to do an example of just for the basis to say that even if somebody does have more of a significant um, symptoms or even most like recent um, kind of flare-ups or difficulties that that doesn't mean to sort of like you know if anybody's listening that's just you know don't assume that you can't get them cover it may take obviously a bit more research and there'll probably be some obviously there'll definitely be some medical um sort of uh, requirements around the side of that in regards to gp reports but it's um but it is doable i think it's important to say so so in that initial period of diagnosis then potentially you'll you'll have some insurers who would be postponing while not sure as to whether you know whether it's ms at all or if it's ms then then what the prognosis will be as you go through once you've had that diagnosis um certainly i i would say overall for 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 a year or more then it's understood and expected that you will have good days and bad days good months and bad months um throughout and so i I don't think you know it's not something where you you know where, where that should stop or make you apply for insurance at a particular time it, it's a condition that's i guess quite hard to do an, an underwriting summary of because as those cases explain well it does quite quickly become a decisions range from standard to decline um, and pretty much every rating along the way based on 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 the severity and and ultimately that's going to be the key factor is ability to work um, um, impact on mobility and things like that are the main indicators that we would look for as to current and and kind of ongoing severity to that would that would broadly do it but i think those two would help those two cases really do help give a fair indication of about where things would would settle down so obviously they were my sort of main things i think probably a bit of a recap on our thoughts in regards to how the industry is responding in regards to coronavirus so so one of the things that i obviously want to to say is obviously i mentioned briefly you know there was uh, there's some insurers who are doing like really really big steps and big strides to adapt to um, having to change. Obviously, a lot of their workers are having to work from home. Um, we can't suddenly have nurses screenings or medicals anymore. You know, there really has to having to be a huge change. And obviously, some workers are ill, so people's workloads are going up, you know, fanta- you know fun- incredible amounts at the moment. Um, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of things going around sort of like saying that, uh, you know, insurers are now not going for GP reports, they're not doing this, they're not doing that, they're not doing this. Well, we have seen, obviously, AIG and Guardian have adapted to virtual medical screenings where they can. And there are some insurers who still kind of on a case-by-case basis, and depending upon the condition and different things like that, they are prepared to still maybe go for GP reports. But I think there's certain things as an advisor that you can do to maybe help that. So if you are speaking to a client and you know they've got a medical condition, and you pretty quickly realize that you know they are um it's going to need a gp report there's probably a good idea to ask the client if if they're happy to speak to or if they're happy for you to speak to the surgery and say to them obviously we fully appreciate the nhs is under significant strain at the moment but can you let us know you know basically 
would you be able to complete something like a GP report at this time? Because we're seeing very, very mixed responses at the moment. Some GPs are saying, absolutely no, we are inundated, we cannot possibly do them. There's other GP surgeries that are saying, well, we're not seeing patients, so actually we, we don't really have much work to do. So yeah, we can complete that. And it's I've seen it reported that some of them are coming back even quicker than they used to do. So I think there needs to be, again, that kind of fine balance and not that blanket approach. I don't like blanket approaches to things. I always think that there needs to be a little bit of a wiggle room. Um, but as an advisor, that is a sorry, my tip for sort of like saying, you know, trying to improve the, as much as possible your ability to be able to, to support somebody with a medical condition is just find out what their um, opinions are, you know, ask the client what they're comfortable with. Um, and, you know, because some clients aren't comfortable with you speaking to their GP because they say, well, no, you know, there's the, they're under so much pressure. I don't want you speaking to them at the moment. This is going to need to wait. Um, and others are sort of like, well, let's let's see what happens. Yeah, look, I, I entirely agree that, that um, there's lots of good stuff going on. And that's at a time when people are also probably working harder than they ever have and in different situations than they ever have. Um, equally, I think it's fair and right that, that if we see things that, you know, that that cause risks uh, to to individuals such as those with MS uh, that, that could see cover restricted, that we voice those concerns or that I voice those concerns. Um, and, and the GP and, and, and the GP and the GP, um, the GPR example is a good one, right? Um, and, and you're absolutely right to stress. Most insurers are still willing to try and get evidence from GPs. Um, but, to be clear for any that aren't, it probably means that at the moment they're not going to be able to, be able to underwrite um, someone with MS or other conditions. I did read, I, th- I think your point on if people can get medical reports from themselves is always good. Um, I An amazing thing happened at the weekend and I learned something on LinkedIn, Ooh. which is um, rare. I normally just, you know, it's normally just skim, another skim, social skim. media yeah. thing. But, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I put something up about, um, so now only... Seven percent at the moment of GP referrals are happening face to face. Right, I think it's eighty percent of phone base now. And, and there's this usual: well, will this will this mean change in the future? Yeah. Um, and there's, I guess, the two things, two interesting things. One were how important indemnity insurance is to GPs, and that in effect they've been assured that that it's okay to do stuff over the phone for now, but. Yeah that that assurance may not last beyond so that may see a route back that's interesting um and the second was around the fact that people aren't using the, the nhs as normal at the moment and i think we're going to see increasing pushes from government that people should be so the specific thing there that a doctor came on and told me um but i've since seen verified um was that there's been 70% less cancer suspected cancer referrals from GPs in the last oh. three weeks into cancer specialist services, um, i.e. people aren't going to the doctors with yeah. lumps or bumps. Or uh, And I hypothesise on this, so, so that is yeah. you know, there's data to show that, but I would suggest also potentially with fatigue and numbness Absolutely. and tingling that those things aren't being seen and aren't being picked up. Well, people are going to think so it's think- coronavirus, aren't they? they're just going to think that they've got symptomatic of it that broader picture stuff while you know you and i might get, get worried about insurances again both for for people normal people but also thinking about what that might mean for for insurers is is um 
is interesting and frankly worrying to the health of the population as a whole. Um, but yes, I, I know we don't need more things to worry about. But I guess, I guess yeah. if you're listening, uh, uh, you know, if, if I could if, try, try and do something good for one individual, if I, I guess the, the overwhelming uh, end of that report is always you should still be um, at least speaking to your doctor and at least, you know, if you are worried about anything, then don't just assume it's coronavirus and don't yeah. just wait till this is over because, frankly, it's not going to be over for a long time. Yeah. The difference between finding symptoms early and finding them late is massive absolutely you know you're completely right and just um i just want to scoop back to something that you said then that just like struck a card for me but you know you were saying about us maybe saying things if they don't sound right in a sense that we may be you know obviously in yeah. a respectful way say things if we don't sound right but i think there was something i can't remember the exact figure but i think i saw something where someone had said well it's okay you know that we're stopping all these things about medicals and all this kind of stuff because we're still insuring 85 percent of people who apply to us and um and I, I found that quite, frankly, quite, quite insulting um, because I'm not one of the, I'm one of the 15 percent and um, Alan's one of the 15 percent. And I was chatting to a few people on Twitter and there's, you know, a number of people who were, you know, replying to me on Twitter saying, yeah, I'm one of those people as well. Yeah. So I'm one of that 15 percent who would not be able to get insurance right now and protect my family. And it almost feels like we're being swept under the rug. And it's a case of, well, it, 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 it's not said in that way, but the, in, the hidden message in it is that the 15% don't matter. So it's okay. What, what's happening now is okay because the 15% don't matter. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, that then the further hidden message, it doesn't matter because, you know, in a sense, they're at high risk to something terrible happening from coronavirus. So it's, that's ultimately going to not be, be good for us, you know. And um and I just I think the message that's delivered, it, it just has to be very carefully thought out from all angles if a message like that is being put out there, because in some ways it's a positive message, but there is two sides to reading those statistics and to reading the message that's going with them. And um and I'm sure that I'm not the only person who would be reading them in that kind of a context. So um, Yeah, and look, I, I guess I'm so as far as I know, I'm one of the 85%, but that doesn't stop me thinking it's politely rubbish yeah. um, to, to say that. Obviously, so the 15% is is where we get, is where my back of envelope, if you sell 2 million policies a year, mm. then that's 300,000 people yeah. that that are being, um, you know, not, not considered in, in the same way and I, I think there's two reasons that that can happen one is one is genuinely again back to the theme of this that, that people have taken the judgment that they're of increased risk and if that's the case then I think then insurers it's 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 it is what businesses need to do but we should be honest that that's why we're doing it yeah. and ultimately then, then we need to be able to explain that as a you know under the usual yeah. acts and legislation and everything like that, that that's why we're doing it. Insurers aren't saying that at the moment. They're more saying, you know, this is operationally driven and we'll we'll look at this in the future, which is a kind of a different argument. And I think unpicking all of that is 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 important, you know, in an age of of transparency and trust and everything like that. I think it's it's as well as making sure that it you, it doesn't make it sound as if you are as if people as if you kind of expect people to be stupid as well like as if people aren't going to understand yeah. and see what's happening you know it's, it's very obvious what's happening it's understandably happening from a business point of view so 
you know, the majority of people are going to get it. <laughs> you know, there's always that thing of no matter what anyone does, no matter what business you are, people are going to get it, people aren't. And it's just uh, making sure that, uh, that we try and keep the, the, the positive images and the positive messages and um, try and avoid any of those double meaning messages that seem to be sort of like floating about a little bit at the moment. But anyway, let's finish um, this on a bit of a lighter note. We're going to go back to our Truth or Life feature because I know our listeners are dying for it, absolutely <laughs> dying for it. So, so we're going to do this. Um, so mine this week, and you'll find out um, in two weeks' time if you come back, which you will, because if not, I'll know, um, is that I have lived in pyjamas every day since lockdown. Okay, and I'm at the other extreme. So I have done a half marathon since lockdown. That's crazy. Well, one of us is crazy. Across your lounge. You're not allowed out. How have you done a half marathon? That is not your hour's exercise, Andrew. <laughs> We'll see. Um, I think if I could do a half marathon in an hour, it would. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that would beat Mo Farah. So, um, yeah. Uh, go all, for it. Well, that's what we expect now. Yeah, that's absolutely. what I expect. You, I'm going to have enough to get Lindsay to like impression your face on a body in front of Mo Farah, <laughs> like running somewhere. Right. <laughs> So um, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, so uh, the next episode, the next big episode is going to be in two weeks' time and we'll feature another mystery guest. I feel like we need a sound kind of thing going, ooh, when I say that. And we really hope that you found this useful. And if you do have any questions that you want to discuss um, or any points you want to make, um, please do send us a message. Yeah, so we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode where us and the mystery guests will be talking about strokes, then please do drop us a message on social media or visit our website on www.practical-protection.co.uk. Until then, thank you for listening and um, speak soon. Take, take care. Bye now. Thank you, Andrew. Bye.